0: Hello, and welcome to the Not-A-Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work. While he's away, I'm doing a variety of episodes, some on my own, some coming up with guest hosts, including picking up where I left off last time Jeff was away with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last week, I covered Book 4, Chapter 4 of The Lord of the Rings of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit, where Sam just tried to have a nice home-cooked meal, but ended up running into the war, and we met the new character of Faramir. This week we're moving into chapter 5 of book 4, The Window on the West, but this is a very long chapter, the longest chapter so far in book 4, so I'm going to be doing what we often do on the Song of Ice and Fire podcast and split this chapter up into two episodes. So next week I'm going to be finishing this chapter up, so we're going to be just starting off this chapter this week, book 4, chapter 5 of The Lord of the Rings, The Window on the West. When last we left off, Sam was taking a nap, perchance to dream of the wonders he'd seen but he wakes up to some grim realities. As I said last week, the middle section of book four works differently from the beginning and the end of the book, which are focused more on otherworldly obstacles in dreamlike settings. Here, in the middle of the book, Tolkien is focused on mundane, practical realities. What the mortals make of each other when they're not busy dealing with things like flying ringwraiths and giant spiders. Faramir returned while Sam slept, bringing all his men with him. Hundreds of men, gathered in a semicircle around Frodo and Faramir, who sit facing each other. It looks to Sam as though Frodo is on trial. We've gone from high fantasy to a legal drama. And like most legal dramas, this one is at its heart about performance. The staging also reminds me of an amphitheater, as though Frodo and Faramir are putting on a play. And so they are. They're performing, for each other, for the onlooking men, and for themselves. Because it's not just Frodo on trial. Faramir's soul must take the stand as well. This is his crucible, like and yet unlike his brothers at the end of Book 2. Speaking of Book 2, this scene is a sequel of sorts to the Great Council at Rivendell. Sam was also an outsider there, uninvited to the discussions of the Great and Powerful, but bursting in to stick up for Frodo. Faramir even brings up the same dream that Boromir did at Rivendell. But at Rivendell, everyone told stories about what's been happening in Middle-earth. It was every species and faction brought together to identify their common doom and common chance. Now the audience is only men. Grim, suspicious men, who will be all that is left when the other peoples of Middle-earth are gone. And Frodo has the spotlight all to himself to pick up the story since Rivendell. So much of The Lord of the Rings is about story how storytelling intertwines with identity and with time. In this scene, Frodo will live or die on his story. He's like Scheherazade in Arabian Nights, telling stories to the king to stay alive. Although the better comparison might be Odysseus, another hero on a journey there and back again, forced to tell and retell his story whenever he washes up on a new shore. Frodo's audience for his story is Faramir, stern and commanding as he's described, full of wit but also doubt. He's a wonderfully complex character, one of my favorites in The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien said in his letters that if any character in the story were like him, it was Faramir. And the author's identification may have helped him show us Faramir's thought processes, even though he isn't ever our POV in this chapter. Because Faramir as a character is all about the thought process. Deliberation, contemplation, thinking things through before acting. He's the antithesis of his brother Boromir in that regard, although that doesn't automatically remove the threat to our heroes. Faramir is more thoughtful than his brother, but that cuts both ways. He notices things his brother wouldn't have, and so it's harder to keep anything hidden from his eye, as roving and watchful as the great eye of Sauron. This is like a gentler version of Sauron interrogating Pippin in the Palantir at the end of Book 3. Faramir zeroes in on the holes in Frodo's story, As I said last week, the Hobbit was holding back, and Faramir is smart enough to tell. But Faramir's interrogation is about more than what happened. It's about who Frodo is, peeling back the layers to determine if they ought to be friends or enemies. And while Faramir is the one asking the questions, Frodo is trying to work out the answers to the same questions about Faramir. The suspicion rebounds onto men. Because they're talking about the object Faramir knows only as Isildur's bane, a.k.a. the weakness of men. What concerns Boromir concerns me, Faramir says, and that's true even before you know that they're related. Faramir is linked to the weaknesses of other men. We start the trial in Medias Res. Faramir has been questioning Frodo for some time before Sam woke up. Faramir is interpreting not only Frodo's story, but the dream that he and Boromir shared. Reading between the lines, like any good literary critic, Faramir determines from the dream that the coming of the halfling goes hand in hand with the return of Isildur's Bane. But what is Isildur's Bane? Faramir knows that Isildur was killed by an orc arrow, but Boromir wouldn't take that as a sign of the doom of Gondor. The arrows of the enemy are all too familiar for the men of Gondor. And there's a lot going on there. First of all, it's ironic that an orc arrow was a very literal sign of doom for Boromir. That's what killed him. But his true downfall came before that, just as Isildur's Bane was not the arrow that literally killed him, but the ring that corrupted him. Faramir is right to intuit that something else must have been revealed at Rivendell, something more dangerous and dramatic than an arrow. He just lacks the context to know what that is. You really see Faramir's clever mind at work here. He takes apart Frodo's story like an engineer dismantles a machine looking for a problem. You can already tell that Faramir thinks differently than his brother did. The open question is whether he's going to act differently, which is why Frodo holds back. Boromir was big and strong, but Faramir has an army all around them, a threat made manifest like the Black Gate on the other side of the war. Frodo is walking along a razor's edge. If he gives away too much, Faramir might get greedy and seize the ring like his brother. If he gives away too little, Faramir might get angry and have him forcibly searched, producing the same result. It's a functional lack of trust, as when the Fellowship first arrived in Lothlorien. Yet Frodo and Faramir will part on friendly terms, like Gimli and Galadriel before them. Notice those first letters in the name in common piling up there. Tolkien does a masterful job slow rolling this. You keep waiting for Faramir to break, to snap like Boromir did. But it never happens. He holds himself still as stone, his emotions coming and going like the tides, but never ruling his decisions, which are ruled instead by his questing intellect. It comes as no surprise when we learned he was friend and disciple to Gandalf the Grey. He carries himself like Gandalf, whereas Boromir carried himself like their father Denethor. Gandalf's fierce intelligence sometimes outpaced his kind heart, and same goes for Faramir here. Frodo has to be careful with him. It's like a duel or a dance. You gotta know your steps or you'll fall. When Faramir asks the witness whether he denies that he is the halfling from his prophetic dream, Frodo stays silent, rather than explicitly confirm it or lie. In the previous chapter, Frodo told Faramir that the ring was hidden. So now Faramir asks a leading question. Is that not because you're hiding it? On the surface, they're fighting over passive voice. Tolkien was a big old nerd about language, so that's what they're fighting about. But what they're really fighting over is choice. Is this thing hidden by its nature? Or are you choosing to conceal it? Frodo denies the choice, not out of cowardice, but out of humility. While Isildur's bane has become my burden, it does not belong to me, and so the choice to hide it is not truly mine. It's a matter of fate. If it belongs to any mortal, Frodo says, it's Aragorn. Faramir responds proudly to that. Why not Boromir? He's prince of the city founded by Elendil's descendants, so now we're worrying, uh uh-oh, this is going to be Boromir 2.0. Aragorn's claim, after all, cuts deeper. He's heir to Isildur himself, not just the city. But Faramir isn't moved in either direction neither impressed nor enraged. He recognizes that this reveal is actually a dodge. It's not what they were talking about. It's not what he's trying to find out from Frodo. Maybe that's true about Aragorn, Faramir says. Maybe it isn't. Aragorn hasn't shown up at the city yet to make good on these extraordinary claims. Faramir is zeroing in on relevant evidence, like a canny lawyer. What can Frodo actually prove? Frodo falls back on Boromir as proof of all he said. Boromir believed Aragorn's claims. Boromir knew what Frodo's task was, go ask him. He might even be home by now, as he planned. (sighs) If only. This is ironic on multiple levels. Information is being concealed in all directions. Frodo is keeping things hidden from Faramir, but Faramir is keeping things hidden from Frodo, and the author is revealing some things to us, but not others. We know that Boromir attacked Frodo for the ring. Frodo has a vivid, violent flashback to this moment when Faramir asks if Boromir was his friend. That's why Frodo is keeping it secret, more than, as he says, the general desire to keep his mission secret from anyone outside the Fellowship. He's not so willing to trust men specifically after what happened. But we also know that Boromir never made it home, because orcs killed him shortly after Frodo left, so he can't back up anything Frodo is saying. Sam takes refuge in Frodo's proud words, but then Faramir delivers the most dramatic piece of evidence. What would you say if I told you Boromir was dead? Faramir knew all along. That's something the reader didn't know, and this reframes everything. Faramir is not just suspicious about what the hobbits might be hiding, he's prosecuting them for the crime of Boromir's murder. As Frodo says, Faramir has been laying a trap, not with swords and arrows as he did for the south runs in the previous chapter, but with words. Frodo wonders if Faramir is lying, and the reader might be wondering the same thing, but from a different angle. We know from book three that Boromir is truly dead, but how could Faramir possibly know that? We'll find out soon. In the moment, it seems suspect. Faramir, though, says he wouldn't even lie to an orc. To lie is blasphemy, worse than war. It's corruption, is what befell Isildur. This attitude might seem naive or just outdated, but note that Faramir is as willing to dodge questions as Frodo. He holds back for the moment on how he knows his brother is dead, pressing onto Frodo the question of how it happened. Frodo honestly has no idea. It's a dangerous world, he says. Boromir could have died in any number of ways. True, says Faramir, and treachery among them, all but outright accusing Frodo. This is monstrously unfair, especially given what the reader knows about what Boromir did, and Sam is a vessel for the audience here as he often is. Just like at Rivendell, Sam bursts onto the scene to cut through all the performances with plain, simple talk. And just like at Rivendell, he immediately gets ahead of himself. I hadn't noticed until this read-through how Tolkien describes Sam's interruption. Bursting into the middle of the ring. The ring, you say? Well, that's Sam in a nutshell. Stumbling into the great circular story of the ring, uninvited but essential, making the best of it. Sam plants himself in front of Faramir with his hands on his hips. He's acting, Tolkien writes, like he's dealing with a young hobbit giving him sauce after stealing from the orchard. Sam is putting things into a context he understands, dealing with Faramir as though they're still in the Shire. Tolkien writes that while the men around them are initially taken aback by this, they quickly start smiling, finding the whole thing hilarious. So even though Sam is angrily defying Faramir, he's actually deflating the tension in the scene without meaning to. He's just that earnest, and he's just that out of context. Like his song about the Oliphant at the Black Gate, being out of context winds up working in his favor. The song reminded Frodo of happier times, even though it was about something he'd never seen. And even though these men have never seen a hobbit defy their captain before, it makes them happy, because for a moment, it feels like they live in a world where the worst thing that could happen is someone stealing from an orchard. And the reader smiles too, because for a moment it's like we're back in the Shire, in the beginning of the story, before any of this happened. Sam makes the same point Frodo was making. We have enemies in common who are coming for all of us. Ironically, by accusing us of turning on our friends, you're doing exactly that turning on those who ought to be your friends and allies. You're turning into Sauron's friend, Sam says, doing his work for him, as so many characters do, like Faramir's brother before him and their father after him. Sam says, if you mean to accuse us, have done. No more dancing around. Do as you will with us. It's very brave. But Sam still can't address the point they're dancing around, why it is, exactly, that leaving these hobbits alone is so important in the fight against the Dark Lord. He can't be honest. Moreover, as Faramir points out, Sam is basically asking for death, pushing Faramir to make a hasty decision here. Turns out Faramir has orders to kill anyone he finds in Athelion without his father's leave. That dampens any comfort the audience might have taken in the trees and nice smells here. This is a war zone. It's an ironic reversal of what went down when Gollum caught up with the hobbits at the start of Book 4. Sam was the one being hasty then. Now he's in Gollum's position. Then again, Gollum was chasing the hobbits. All Frodo and Sam are asking is to be left alone. That seems reasonable enough. What's Faramir's problem, anyway? He tells them at last. What is honor, next to the memory of a brother's smile? Wind and words. The gods have fashioned us for love, and Faramir loved Boromir, because they were brothers. We just keep getting new information that adds layers to this confrontation. As with Faramir revealing that he knows Boromir is dead, this revelation reframes everything. This isn't just business for Faramir, it's personal. He's more than a prosecutor nailing a witness on the stand, he's a grieving brother trying to fill the hole inside. Frodo realizes his peril is greater than ever before, yet he feels less afraid, not more because he senses that Faramir is different from his brother, beneath the similar surface. It's just like how when Frodo met Aragorn, he saw beneath the rough surface to the kind heart. All that is gold is not glitter. Same applies here. And maybe Frodo also isn't afraid, because when Faramir says, the dead man Frodo is now on trial for murdering was his brother, the expression on his face is not rage, but sorrow. Faramir tells a story, and as Aragorn said, all songs they sing in Middle-earth are sad. It's always about the recall, the return, people telling stories to hold on to what they've lost, at least in the form of signs and symbols. Faramir starts his story by asking Frodo to remember something. What did Boromir carry with him? A horn, Frodo remembers. And that, more than anything, is what cements his bond with Faramir. That horn was so meaningful to their family. A legacy, something which, unlike the throne of Gondor, was theirs to have and to hold. A literal voice down through the generations, calling them at need. A spiritual bond, something most unlike a ring of power. Faramir heard it the day Boromir died, and then he saw Boromir's body. Like a fusion of a Viking funeral, Boromir's sword and shield at his side, with Moses in his crib drifting through the reeds. His boat is there to take him downriver, but also to cross the river into the realm of death. It glows with a pale light like a ghost, Frodo will take his own version of this boat at the end of the story. The boat seemed to Faramir to be filled with clear water, giving off light, which is exactly how Frodo looks to both Gandalf and Sam. How did Boromir look to Faramir? Well, he was missing something. That horn. But he had something in its place, something unfamiliar to his brother. A belt of golden leaves. That legacy, the sound Faramir heard like devil dogs howling, has been replaced by the belt made in Lothlorien. A circular sign of grace, like a halo. Boromir is in a better place now. Leaving us behind, along with the world in which he broke. It was dreamlike, Faramir says. Yet no dream, because he's yet to wake up from it. And Tolkien lampshades how unrealistic this is. Frodo points out that there's no way Boromir's boat and body survived the great waterfalls near where they parted ways. Maybe this was just a phantom, like the ones the hobbits saw in the dead marshes? No, says Faramir. Because the works of the enemy induce only disgust and fear, whereas this vision made him melancholy. It's not about realism but a sense of the transcendent. Lothlorien is what binds it all together. Frodo provides material support for Faramir's vision by showing off his brooch, from Lothlorien. The boats came from there too. Faramir takes this news with wonder, demonstrating that he's different from his brother, or the Rohirrim for that matter. Remember how suspicious Eomer was when he learned the fellowship had passed through Lothlorien? Faramir acknowledges the dangers of the Golden Wood, but again with sorrow rather than anger. What did Galadriel see in my brother, he wonders. What did he learn about himself that he never knew before? Did it change him, make him someone different than the brother I loved? He cries these questions out to the void. There is no answer. The horn came home as well, broken in two, like Boromir's spirit, like the fellowship itself like the narrative thread now passed onto his brother Faramir and their father Denethor. The horn now rests on his lap, Faramir says, setting up how resentful and bitter Denethor is in Book 5. This family dynamic is one of the most interesting aspects of The Lord of the Rings to me, in part because it represents changing models of martial masculinity, relevant to Tolkien as he looked back on World War I and forward to the rest of the 20th century. Stephen Brett Carter, in his article Faramir and the Heroic Ideal of the 20th Century, or How Aragorn Died at the Somme, argued that Boromir, quote, "...represents the ancient heroic tradition of warriors that pursued glory and honor to their death." End quote. A model that really broke down in the agonizing chaos of World War I, as the combination of new technology and old ways of thinking produced what Tolkien himself described as the animal terror of the trenches. In 1953, Tolkien published The Homecoming of Bjortnoth Bjrthelm's Son, a poem slash play which incorporated and analyzed the Old English poem, The Battle of Maldon. Tolkien critiqued the concept of Oframad, an Old English word he translates as overwhelming pride. Amber Dunai, in her article Oframad and Aristocratic Chivalry in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, argues convincingly, I think, that Tolkien uses Boromir as a vessel to further this critique in The Lord of the Rings citing the moment in which Boromir blows that horn while leaving Rivendell so as to not go out like a thief in the night as a representative example. As Carter says in his article, quote, going forth as thieves in the night is exactly how Faramir chooses to conduct war. He goes on to argue that, quote, Faramir represents a departure from ancient forms of war and the classical hero, as he embodies battle strategies, uniform considerations, and equipment advancements of the 20th century soldier. And Carter argues that for Tolkien, Faramir's character, quote, exists as a means to establish a new definition of the heroic model for the 20th century, in contrast to the ancient heroic ideals which are dissolved in World War I. Carter cites the battle against the Southrons I talked about last week as a representative example, noting that, quote, the rangers under the command of Faramir are armed with long bows, giving them the capability to wage war over distances greater than most of their foes. This is the same type of warfare, deemed cowardly and dishonorable by the chivalric knights, but is far more effective and less perilous than the face-to-face equivalent, especially when used from cover. And this might sound familiar to fans of A Song of Ice and Fire. Remember how scornful Jaime is of archers in his early chapters? You could say Jaime's arc is about starting as Boromir before becoming more like Faramir. Baragond, the guardsman Pippin meets in Minas Tirith in Book 5, sums up Faramir's character. He is bold, more bold than many deem. For in these days men are slow to believe that a captain can be wise and learned in the scrolls of lore and song, as he is, and yet a man of hardihood and swift judgment in the field. But such is Faramir, less reckless and eager than Boromir, but not less resolute. So we're seeing a passing of the baton, a changing of the guard. Maybe that prophetic dream about the halfling and Isildur's bane really was meant for Faramir all along. Boromir died for his hubris, and the mantle of destiny settles around his brother's shoulders once more. Carter compares Tolkien's framing of Faramir to the Fellowship itself, saying that, by giving the Fellowship garments of camouflage, Tolkien is affirming that the heroic model must be renewed, and that the hero must adapt to the new standard of warfare. And where did they get those garments of camouflage? Lothlorien, the same place Boromir got his belt and his funeral boat. So it's only now that Frodo is no longer a stranger because he's elvish, in a way, as Faramir says, like Faramir himself. In the moments, though, when Frodo hears the news that Boromir is dead, he can only think of his other companions, potentially lost as well in whatever calamity claimed Boromir. The uncertainty of it tears at him, and he despairs. Again, this is a chapter all about dramatic irony, as we know that the rest of them are alive and... If not well, generally better off than Frodo was gonna be. Even the one Frodo knows he's lost, Gandalf has actually returned. Frodo feels alone. He's bereft, heartsick, and just too damn tired to deal with Faramir's bullshit. He just wants to go. Die with your people, he says, and I'll die for mine. Pure courage. And this reaction helps sway Faramir because he sees himself in Frodo. So he comforts him saying that some members of the Fellowship had to be alive to prepare Boromir for his passage. And we know that's true. It's a connection that lingers through space and time, as the sound of the horn called Faramir forth to meet death and destiny. Some hold true, Faramir is saying, and I am one of them. Still, when Faramir decides to bring the hobbits along to his hideout, Frodo can't help but wonder, is that a request or an order? Little of both, as we'll get into next time when I finish up Book 4, Chapter 5 of The Lord of the Rings. So, in each of my Lord of the Rings episodes, I've been wrapping things up by talking a little bit about the movie adaptations by Peter Jackson and company that came out about 20 years ago, and how they've handled each stretch of the material. The adaptation of Faramir remains a sore spot for many fans of the books. The character's grace, intelligence, and humility were given short shrift, as he showed a lust for the ring that his character in the books specifically denied. I understand why the change was made. That sort of subtle, sensitive characterization might not scan as sufficiently dramatic. I think the problem is that Faramir becomes a less distinctive, memorable character as a result. At least in The Two Towers, he's just sort of a less charming version of Boromir. That said, his adaptation in Return of the King works better, as I'll get into when we reach Book 5. Here, the truncation comes at cost to the material. Generally, the filmmakers were geniuses at compression and consolidation, But the trial of Frodo is so underplayed. And it really doesn't make sense for Frodo to be shocked that Boromir is dead, given that in the movies he escaped right in the middle of the orc attack. How, he asks, when? Uh, maybe right then, because of the orcs? Faramir gets his vision in the extended edition, and I really like the touch of the close-up of him from below, just like the scene with the dead Southron I talked about last week. It puts Boromir in the position of the fallen foe with Faramir recognizing himself in both of their death masks. I also love the Osgiliath flashback. It wouldn't have fit into the theatrical edition. It's too long a diversion to spend on Boromir, who died in the last movie, and Denethor, who won't show up again until the next one. But if you're enjoying the extended editions as one sprawling 12-hour saga, this is connective tissue that makes it all feel whole. It's perfect setup for Denethor, and more time with Sean Bean and his incredibly charismatic performance as Boromir is all for the better. It's so emotional, Asgiliath retaken but broken all around them, playing host to Faramir's crestfallen need for his father's approval, Denethor's quivering rage and greed, and Boromir caught between them, trying to do right by both. "'Remember today, little brother,' he says with glee at the start. "'Today, life is good.'" And then Dad shows up to split them apart. "'Remember today, little brother,' he says sadly at the end. He omits the second part, a structuring silence. Life is no good. And then he's gone. It was their last day. Faramir couldn't forget it if he wanted to. It's less distinctive than the books, less intellectually, philosophically resonant than the ideas Tolkien is working through with these characters, but it works emotionally on its own terms, which for me is how the movie trilogy operates as a whole. And I think that's going to wrap us up for this episode on The Lord of the Rings. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can follow us at ASOIAF on Twitter, or shoot us an email at ASOIAF at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. If you haven't already, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ASOIAF, where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes like the Star Wars series I'm doing, and many more benefits. And like I said, next week we're going to be finishing up this chapter. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time for the conclusion to Book 4, Chapter 5 of The Lord of the Rings, The Window on the West.